18 to 24. Here is what the author of Hebrews wrote to uh, his readers. For you have not come to a mountain that cannot be touched and that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further words be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. And here's the quote, if even an animal touched the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Um, you have come to thousands upon thousands of angels joyful in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator, of the new covenant, of a new covenant, and to a sprinkled, sprinkled blood that speaks better words than that of Abel. Amen? Amen? All right. So the first word in verse 18 is what? For. For you have come, right? What does that word mean? That means that now he's building on what he has already said last week. Anybody remember what we talked about last week? We closed last week when the author of Hebrews gave us the illustration of Esau. Remember that? Who was unfaithful to God and who was secular, who went after immediate gratification, and he sold out the eternal things of God. So the concept here is that Esau, when he eventually wanted to inherit the blessing, he begged for it with tears. That's what the author of Hebrews said, and he could not find it because it was gone. So in the context of God's judgment over um, sin and over abandoning Christ and apostasy, now the author of Hebrews is continuing his warning to the people that he wrote this book to, and he's giving them a fast contrast between two situations, the inauguration of the covenant, the old covenant versus the inauguration of the new covenant. Approaching God under the Old Testament terms and approaching God under the New Testament terms. And he contrasting them so radically so that the people will understand the gravity of rejecting God if, they, if the people, the readers of the book of Hebrews will ultimately reject God. Amen? Yeah. Now, Sister, Sister Laura emailed me yesterday. She said that she's going to bring presents next week. So make sure you pay attention because there will be a quiz next week. And then if you get it right, you'll get something, okay? So pay attention this time. Uh, now, verse 18. Verse 18 stands in sharp contrast with verse 21. You can see that. For you have not come, that's the beginning of verse 18, but look at verse 22. But you have come. So here's his contrasting these two situations, what they did not come to versus what they have come to. And that draws to them the contrast of and the gravity of what they're going to do if they ultimately reject God. Verse 18, you have not come. The author of Hebrews here is actually quoting from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 4, verse 11, when actually Moses was recalling the experience of receiving the Ten Commandments of, from God, and he was telling the Israelites this, you 
came and stood at the foot of the mount mountain while it placed with fire, with black clouds and deep darkness. So the author of Hebrews now is capturing that first word, you came and stood. And he's saying, you have not come to what the, the children of Israel have come to. You have come to a different mountain. The children of Israel came to Mount Sinai, but you have come to Mount Zion. Amen? Very interesting is that throughout the book of Hebrews, the word you come or coming is always associated with approaching God. Right? So what the author of Hebrews here is, he's trying to tell them the difference between approaching God. You did not approach God in a way what he's saying is, you did not approach God like the Israelites approached God when they received the Ten Commandments. You approached God in a whole different new and different way than what they did. So the word come is constantly always in the book of Hebrews associated with approaching <clears throat> the presence of God. Now, there is one change that the author of Hebrews have made when he quoted Deuteronomy 4.11. Look at this. Deuteronomy 4.11, Moses said, you, what? Came, right? What tense is that? Past tense. But when the author of Hebrews quoted that verse, what did he say? You have, you did not have come, but you have come, right? So he's changed the past tense into the perfect tense. If you know grammar, you know that the perfect tense means something that started in the past, but the consequences of this thing is ongoing, right? Versus if it's a past tense, means something happened and it's over and it's done, right? Like, you follow me? So what the author of Hebrews did, he's changed the tense from the past tense to the perfect tense to tell them that the experience of coming to God is has an ongoing consequences that you are still experiencing even as of today. Amen? Now, in Greek, the structure of this passage is so wonderful. You cannot see it very clearly here in, in, in English. But in the first part, in verse 18 to verse 21, he has the word, the word end seven times. And then in verse 22 to verse uh, 24, he also has the word, word end seven times. So he's contrasting seven things that they have not come to versus seven things that they have come to. Amen? Now, let's look at the things that they did not come to. Seven things the author of Hebrews pointed out. Number one, he said, you did not come to a mountain that cannot be touched, right? Because that was the condition under the Old Testament. Also, burning, that is, burning with fire. So mountain that cannot be touched, fire, Darkness, gloom, storm, trumpet that, that uh, blast, and a voice speaking that you cannot make up the words. That's the seven things that he referenced in the Old Testament that the people of his time did not come to, that you and I did not come to. Amen? Now, what is the common denominator among all these seven things, if you can uh, figure that out? They're all... Scary stuff, right? <laughs> that's absolutely true. They're all scary stuff. And that's his exact point that when people approach God under the Old Testament terms, under the Old Covenant term, it was a terrifying, scary experience, right? 
He said, you did not come to a mount that cannot be touched. And that's a quote actually from the Old Testament. Moses commanded the people, remember that? When, when God gave the commandment. Moses said, you need to build a fence around Mount Sinai and you make sure that neither any of you nor any of your animals will ever come close because if anyone or even an animal will touch the, mount, the mountain, you will surely die. So that's what the author of Hebrews here is referring to. He said, you did not come to fire, darkness, and gloom. That's actually a quote from Deuteronomy 5.22. When you see the events that took place when God revealed his Ten Commandments, Deuteronomy 5.22. These are the commandments that the Lord proclaimed. Look at this. With a loud voice to your whole assembly, there on the mountain, from out, from out of the fire, the cloud, and the deep darkness, and he added nothing more. So that the three elements here, fire, darkness, and gloom, again, is a quote from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 5, verse 22. Now, other than the mount, you can sp break these other elements into two parts. The first thing is the fire, the darkness, and the gloom. That tells you that they did not really see God very good because of that circumstances, right? And then the, the next set of elements that he mentioned is uh, the sound of the trumpet, the sound of the trumpet, the words that you cannot made up. And what did he say after that? Um, gloom and storm, trumpet. I think it's the storm. So storm and the trumpet and the sound means that they did not hear God good. So the idea here is even though they came to God, it wasn't a real relationship. It's not that they could see God good or hear God good. You guys are with me? And that's the point that the author of Hebrews is saying here. Approaching God under the Old Testament was a scary, terrifying, not real, genuine relationship that the children of Israel have experienced. And the last part of that, that's kind of the climax. It, it says this, it says that you have come to, to the voice of the one. You kind of heard some mumbling, but you could not understand the actual words that were said on Mount Sinai. And that's also a quote from Deuteronomy 4.12 when, when, when it states that, which states that the Israelites did not see God. They only heard a sound of words, kind of mumbling and stuff like that, but they, did, they could not make up the exact same words that God was telling Moses. So you guys are getting the picture of what the author of Hebrews is trying to tell us? Amen? The point is the whole experience of approaching God under the Old Testament was a terrifying experience. It was a fearful experience. It wasn't a real genuine encounter with the living God. And that's what he's climaxing here again in the end of verse 19 and verse 20. Look what the author of Hebrews is saying. Verse 19, it says this. Um, the one who heard that, that sounding of voice, the, the mumbling, begged, look at this, begged that no further words should be spoken to them because they could not, because they could not bear what was commanded that even if, a, if an animal will touch the, the mountain, it should be stoned, right? The, from the experience, they were so terrified that they were begging God, begging God that it will not, that he will stop, that he will leave them alone. And they told Moses, they said, you know what? We cannot do this. This is too much for us. You hear from God and you bring the word to us and then we will listen to it and then we will obey it. Amen? Now, 
the Bible also say here a couple of things. It says this, that they trembled at the command and they, and he quoted in the Old Testament and the, the scripture he quotes is this. He says, the, uh, even if an animal, that's the command, even if an animal touched the mountain, it must be stoned to death. And that's a quote from the Old Testament. However, the quote from the Old Testament says, if a man or an animal touched the mountain, then it should be put to death, right? The author of Hebrews here, when he quoted that verse, ignored the, the man part and just emphasized the most strict of these rules, which is if an animal touched the mount, it should be stoned to death to show to his reader how terrifying that sight, that place was to the children of Israel. Amen? Verse 21, the sight was so terrifying that even Moses said, I am trembling with fear. Remember that Moses was the mediator of the Old Covenant, right? He's the one who brought the Old Covenant to the people of God. Now the author of Hebrews is telling us that that scene, that sight, that experience was so awesome, was so terrifying that even the mediator of the covenant himself, Moses, was what? Was terrified. And he said, I am trembling with that fear. Remember? where the word fear was mentioned before in the scripture, in the book of Hebrews, it was mentioned before in chapter 10 a couple of times, mainly in the context of the judgment of God, when the author of Hebrews was saying, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hand of the living God. So the idea here is that the presence of God was so awesome, was so terrifying in a way, just like when a sinner goes stand before God, their sins and what they have done when they broke the law of God, the whole experience will be so terrifying to them. But the presence of God was so awesome that even Moses himself was trembling with fear before he entered into that mountain to hear the word of God. What is the point of these verses all together? Experiencing God was such a terrifying experience under the Old Testament rules, under the Old Covenant. But the good news is this is not what you and I have come to. Amen? We did not come to that horrifying, terrifying, fearful encounter with the living God. We have come to a totally different scene that we're going to read about from verse 22 all the way to the end of the verse 24. Amen? Amen? So let's look at what we actually have come to. Again, here the author of Hebrews is mentioning seven things that we have come to. Let's read it together. Number one, we have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. In Greek, that's pretty much all the same thing. They explain each other. Mount Zion is the city of the living God, is the heavenly Jerusalem. Number two, you have come to thousands and thousands of angels in the terrifying assembly. Does it say that? Joyful assembly. You guys start seeing the difference now? In a joyful assembly, number two. Three, to a church of firstborn. Amen? Number four, church of firstborn whose names are written in, in heaven, in the book of life. Number four, you have come to God who is judge of all. Number uh, six, you have come to the spirit, right? Six, to the spirit of the righteous made perfect. I think I'm missing something. Let's do it again. Uh, what, number one is the Mount Zion. Number two is the thousands of angels. Number three is the church of the living born of the newborn. Number four is God who's the judge of all. Number five is the spirit of righteous. And number six, Jesus mediator of the new covenant. And number seven, 
is the sprinkled blood that speaks things better than that of Abel. Amen? Amen. So that's the seven things that you and I have come to. If you cannot tell anything, you can tell that there's a sharp contrast between the terrifying, scary experience under approaching God in the Old Testament versus the joyful, restful, enjoyable experience of approaching God under the new covenant because of Jesus. Amen? Let's look at these seven things. Number one, you have come to Mount Zion, even the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. In the scripture, in the, book, in the Old Testament, the book of Psalms, we see that Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, was actually established, built on Mount, called Mount Zion. And that's what the author of Hebrews is mentioning, referring to here how Jerusalem is almost synonymous to Mount Zion. That's where it was built. And the same idea even will move on to the heavenly new Jerusalem. It also will be built on a spiritual Mount Zion. That's the place with God and man meet together. Amen? In Isaiah 28, 16, here's what Isaiah said. This is what the sovereign Lord says. He says what? See, I lay a stone where? In Zion. A tested stone, a precious cornerstone for uh, for a sure foundation, the one who relies on it will never uh, be stricken with panic. So the idea here is just like the earthly physical Jerusalem was established on a literal mountain called Mountain Zion, so in the same sense, the same manner, God will establish his new Jerusalem, the kingdom of God, the presence of God with his people. God will establish that on a spiritual mountain that is called Mountain of Mount Zion. Amen? And he said that you have come to Mount Zion, not Mount Sinai, where God's presence was terrifying, but Mount Zion, where the presence of God is so joyful. And he said that you have come to the city of God, the heavenly Jerusalem. That reminds us of what the book of Revelation tells us about what's going to happen in the future when God indwells among his people. Revelation 3.12, I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, look at this, which is coming down from where? Heaven. From heaven, from my God, and I will also write on them my new name. Revelation 21.2, and I, John, saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down from where? From God, from heaven, out of heaven, prepared as a prize, a bride adorned for her husband. Amen? The heavenly Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem God, that God will establish is a heavenly one, not an earthly one like the old Jerusalem under the old covenant. Amen? And we have read about this city throughout the book of Hebrews, remember? Remember when we talked about the people of faith, the, the cloud of witnesses, how they did not want to go back to where they came from. Why? Because they were looking forward to the city whose architect and founder is God. That's the exact same city that Abraham was looking for. It's the exact same city that you and I have come to in a spiritual sense. Amen? Amen. And then next chapter, Hebrews 13, 14, we read this. For there, for here have we not continuing city on earth. We don't have a continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Amen? That's what we have come to. We did not come to a terrifying, horrible experience with God. We have come to a joyful, restful, enjoyable presence of God under the new covenant terms. Amen? 
Now, it says this. What else we have come to? It says this, that we have come. Let's read the next number two that we have come to. That we have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in a joyful assembly. Remember this, that the New Jerusalem has angels, actually thousands and thousands of angels, but they are in a joyful assembly. Amen? Now, remember this. The, the author of Hebrews, actually, in, in chapter 2, verse 2, told us that the, the old covenant, the Ten Commandments, have come to us on the hands of angels, mediated by angels, right? That's what he told us. So when the Old Testament was established, the Old Covenant was established, angels also were there when that Old Covenant was established, right? And what the author of Hebrews is telling us, that angels will also be established a present when that new approach to God, to his new way of approaching his presence will also be established. The only difference is under the old covenant, the angels were a terrifying experience approaching God where the angels are with him was such a horrifying experience to man. But now the, the thousands and thousands of angels are joyful and it's such a wonderful experience to be with God in that sense, amen? amen. So that's the difference. Under the Old Testament, approaching God, the angels were a terrifying experiencing, but under the New Testament, there are such a joyful assembly to be together. And then number three, it says this, that we have come to a church of a firstborn. Amen? Now, remember, the word firstborn, we read that Jesus is the firstborn among many brethren. Isn't that true? Uh, Paul told us that in Romans chapter 8, that we all should be conformed to his image so that Jesus will be the firstborn among many brethren. Now, when you and I are confirmed to his image, you and I will also be firstborns like him. And the whole children of God assembly going to be a church of firstborn. Amen? The children of God don't have ranks among them. They don't have firstborn, and they don't have secondborn and thirdborn, right? We're all firstborn in God's economy. And the idea of firstborn is that, remember even from last week about Esau, who was the firstborn and he abandoned his blessing, is not literal physical birth that you have come to existence as number one. It's a spiritual condition. You have received the blessing of the firstborn. You are all, we all rank together as firstborn, all blessed by God in the exact same manner. Amen? We have come to a general assembly of the firstborn. Now, the word general assembly here is, is a Greek word that was used only here in the book of Hebrews and actually in the whole New Testament. And it implies, again, the joy that can be associated with a big gathering where people are just celebrating and enjoying being with each other. Amen? Amen. Now, the idea here, if you remember, remember back in, in Hebrews 4 when the author of Hebrews said that there still remain rest for the people of God, right? Remember that? That is the rest that the author of Hebrews was to, been talking about. That's what he's referring to here, is that eternal status when men and angels are having a fellowship together in the presence of God and the joy and, and the peace that we have together is just beyond description, is beyond words. Amen? That is what you and I have come to because of Jesus and because of the new covenant. Amen? Amen. 
Now, it says this, the church of a firstborn who are enrolled in the heaven. The word enrolled literally means enlisted. Actually, it was used in the book of Luke when it describes how Jesus wanted to be enlisted by Caesar's order and they all went each one to his own city so they can be written down and enlisted. That's the exact same word here. That we're all enlisted in the Lamb book of life. Amen? And generally that terminology being written down in the book of life, written down in heaven, is usually in the scripture associated with the concept of judgment. Whenever there is judgment, you can see the book of life and you see names are being written there. Amen? Amen. So what did we come to in the New Testament so far? We have come to, number one, what is it? Heavenly Jerusalem, the new presence of God. Number two, we have come to thousands of joyful angels. Number three, we have come to a church of firstborn. Their names are written in the book of life. Number four, we have come to God who is a judge over all or judge of all. Throughout the book of Hebrews, we see that there's kind of two groups of people. There are those who ultimately abandon Christ and embrace apostasy and they turn their back on Jesus once and for all and that over and over and over again the author of Hebrews tells us that it is impossible if one commits such a sin that they can ever be renewed through repentance right but in the same time we see throughout the book of Hebrews that other group of people who have been made perfect who have been completed who have been been right with God because of what Jesus has done on the cross and they are they are looking forward to that they are enduring the persecution because they know that they have a better city waiting for them. Amen? Amen. Now the, the author of Hebrews is telling us that God is judge over all for both groups. Every single person, no matter what, they ultimately going to stand before God who is the judge over all. Amen? And that's number four. Number five, we have come to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. Now, after he said that God is judge of all, he's talking about those who have genuinely experienced the love and the grace of God. And he said that they will be made perfect. Does it say that? What does the verse say? You have come to the spirits of righteous men who might be made perfect. What does it say? Who have been made perfect. Again, that's a perfect tense, right? That means they already, the, the actual experience has happened in the past, but the effect of that experience is still keep on going on. You guys are with me? So he's saying here that the church, the New Testament church, the church of the firstborn, is a, is spirits, a group of spirits of righteous people who have been made perfect. And if you remember, we have seen throughout the book of Hebrews that the word perfect is always associated with what Jesus has done for us on the cross, right? Every single time the word perfect used in the, in the book of Hebrews is always associated with the results of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. For example, in, um, in Hebrews 10, it says this, that by this will that Jesus will die on the cross as our substitute, we have been made perfect, right? That's what it says in Hebrews 10, and that's just one example. But every single time it says that we have been made perfect because of what Jesus has done for us. 
And that's what the author of Hebrews is precisely pointing to here, that the church of the firstborn, the New Testament church, is a church that has already been made perfect. It's not something you need to accomplish. It's not something you need to strive for. It is something that you already are. Amen? You have been made perfect because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And it says here this, and to the spirits of righteous people, righteous persons. That takes us back to almost the end of chapter 10 when the author of Hebrews said that the just, the righteous shall live by faith. So he's taking us back to that verse and he said, remember, it's one of the character of us that those who are being made perfect, there are the people who live every single day of their lives by faith because the righteous lives by faith. Amen. So that is number five of what we have come to. Number six, what we have come to, we have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Amen? Amen. And number six and number seven, the author of Hebrews is telling us the foundation, the reason why we have come to these five things before. We have become made perfect. We live in a life of righteousness, a life of faith. God is, is the judge over all. We are the church of the firstborn. All because of Jesus being the mediator of the new covenant. And because of the sprinkled blood that he has shed on the cross for our sins. That speaks better words than that of Abel. Amen. Amen. Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. Every single time the word mediator is used in the book of Hebrews is associated with Jesus dying on the cross for our sins to establish the terms of that new covenant. Amen. We spent weeks talking about this. Let me just give you one reference. Hebrews 9, 14 to 15. Here is what it says. How much more will the blood of Jesus, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Look at the following verse how what does it read for this reason because Jesus died on the cross shed his blood to cleanse us for this reason he is what a mediator of the new covenant because Jesus died because he shed his blood because he atoned for our sin because of that he is a mediator of a new covenant amen and that's what the author of Hebrews is saying here. Remember we said that Jesus is the mediator and the guarantor of the new covenant. Remember all of that? He, doesn't, he didn't just mediate the terms of the new covenant between us and God. He guarantees that the terms of this new covenant will surely come to pass. Amen? Now, Let's move on to the following last one. And now it says this. And to a sprinkling blood that speaks better things than that of Abel. Now, number seven here, the sprinkling blood or the sprinkled blood. He just said that right after number six when he said that Jesus is a mediator of a new covenant. Most likely what the author of Hebrews is referring to here is the events of inaugurating the old covenant in under Moses when Moses was the mediator there. It tells us that when Moses wanted to inaugurate that old covenant in Exodus 24 8 he took blood he sprinkled some of it on the people some of it on the tabernacle and he said this is the blood of the covenant and he ushered the people of God back then into the covenant of God. Amen. What the author of Hebrews is saying is in the same manner in order for Jesus to establish that new covenant between us and God he did the exact same thing but he 
he did not use blood of goats and blood of bulls. He used his own blood and that blood was sprinkled. And because of the sprinkling of the blood now, just like what happened in the Old Testament, we also can usher into a much better and a new covenant, a new relationship with the living God. Amen? So we have come to a far much better blood than the blood of animals that was shed under the old covenant. And it says this, that that blood speaks better things, better word, more effectively than the blood of Abel. Why? What better things the blood of Jesus spoke about? We, we already preached about this for 26 weeks, if you remember. But when the blood of Abel was shed, the blood of Abel cried out to God asking for what? for vengeance, for justice, and it brought what to the human race? The blood of Abel, it brought a curse, right? Remember when Abel, the blood, when God came to Cain and said, what have you done? The blood of your brother is crying out to me from earth. And Abel said, am I, am I my brother's gardener, my brother uh, keeper? And I don't know who, where he is. So God pronounced a curse because of the crying of the blood of Abel. God pronounced a curse on, in Cana and on the whole earth. But in the context, what we see here is that we have so much blessing. We even have the blessing of the firstborn from God. And that is because of what the blood of Jesus speaks on our behalf. Amen. The blood of Abel brought a curse on the human race. But the blood of Jesus brings the blessing of the new covenant with God. Because it speaks on our behalf to God. Amen. One amen. Okay. So what seven things we have come to? We have come, <laughs> let's know God's word. We have come to seven things. Unlike the experience of the children of Israel in the Old Testament, we have come to Mount Zion, that city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Number two, we have come to thousands of thousands of joyful assemblies of angels. I don't know about you. That sounds like a lot of fun to me. Amen. Number three, we have come to a church and every single one of us is a firstborn. Not just the pastor, not just the, the minister and the leader. Every single one of us has the rights of the firstborn in the economy of God. Number three, we have come to God who is judge over all. Number four, we have come to the spirit of righteous people. Every single one. Not to be made perfect, but has already been made perfect. Amen. We have come to Jesus, who is the mediator of the new covenant because he died on the cross and atoned for our sins by his blood. And we have come to a sprinkling blood by which we enter into the new covenant with God. To the sprinkled blood that speaks blessings over us, not a curse over us like, like the blood of Abel. Amen? Whoa. Amen. And that's why we should all usher into the presence of God with no fear. Because all the blessing that God has given us under the new covenant and under its terms. Amen? Alright, let's close our eyes and pray.